Well, this morning it is time for us to uh, take a step back and see the big picture. See the big picture. Have you discovered the app Google Earth? What an amazing app. And so whenever you relocate on Google Earth from your location and put in some new location, you, you zoom out, right, like satellite view, and then you travel across the globe, and then you zoom back in to wherever you have put in. And so what we're going to do this morning is the zoom out to satellite view. We're going to back up for one sermon and, and take the bird's eye view of Matthew 13 and get a framework for understanding the parables in this chapter. We have been, prior to this Sunday, two weeks in Matthew 13 looking at uh, these parables. And we've seen so far that there are varying results to sowing the seed of the gospel. That was part one and two of the last few weeks. And we've learned how results will vary when we engage in the Great Commission. That there is no... Humanly speaking, guarantee of our success. There's nothing we can do to bring anyone into saving faith with with Christ and in Christ. And so Jesus teaches us how our seed sowing results will vary, just as they vary uh, in farming from field to field and from year to year. But we've also seen why results will vary. Not just how they will. We've seen that soil comes in different conditions. And so the fate of the seed varies. It's the same seed and it's the same sower, but different results. We saw last week that God is ultimately and utterly sovereign over man's response. And that man is ultimately and utterly responsible for man's response. In salvation, all of the credit goes to God. And in damnation, all of the blame goes to man. All of the blame falls to the unbeliever because unbelievers choose to close their eyes, plug their ears, and harden their hearts. And we've learned last week that God then justly and judiciously punishes unbelievers with even more blindness And God leaves most people in their sin that they love and that they freely choose. And he conceals the truth from their stone cold hearts. Today we're going to zoom out to satellite view then on this chapter, Matthew 13. Today I want to give you a kingdom of God framework. A kingdom of God framework that will enable us to properly interpret the parables of Matthew 13. Parables are difficult to interpret. Parables are very, very challenging. And tons of mistakes have been made throughout church history on interpreting parables. When you come to Matthew 13 and you pick up five or six different commentaries on these parables, you will have four or five different viewpoints represented. It's a, it's a challenging area of Bible study. And the viewpoints that people will take on these seven parables of this chapter depend on their stance on the kingdom of God. There's a foundational theology that leads us to certain interpretations. And that's the framework we want to talk about this morning. The framework of the kingdom of God. By the way, the kingdom of God is simply the most dominant and most critical theme of the entire Bible. There is no theme of Scripture that rises above the theme of the kingdom of God. 
It runs from Genesis 1-1 to the last verse of the Bible. It is the consistent, dominant theme of the Bible. I want to give you two great resources beyond the Bible itself, which is obviously the best. But I want to give you two great, great resources on this subject. The first is a book called The Greatness of the Kingdom, written in the 50s by Dr. Alva McLean. This book is legendary. This book is a classic on Kingdom of God theology. Dr. McLean was a seminary professor at Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. And many, many people have since referred to this book. It's about 500 pages and it is most excellent. The second resource I want to recommend to you on the subject is more current. It's entitled, He Will Reign Forever, subtitle, A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God, and it's by Dr. Michael Vlock, V-L-A-C-H, Dr. Michael Vlock, who is a seminary professor at the Master Seminary. And uh, I highly uh, believe both of these books and commend them to you. So as we begin this discussion of a framework of the kingdom of God, which is critical to understanding all of the Bible and Matthew 13 in particular, we must begin with making a distinction and a differentiation, which is often passed over and neglected, between the universal kingdom of God and what Alva McLean called the mediatorial kingdom of God. So when we often hear kingdom of God, our reflex is to think universal. And that's because we're good Bible students and good Bible readers, and we've seen this throughout the Bible. Universal kingdom of God is simply from the moment of creation, from the moment there was something for God to reign over, he has reigned over it. When we talk about the universal kingdom of God, we're saying God is king of the universe. God is on his throne. He can never budge one millimeter from that throne. He rules and reigns over every molecule, every atom of all of his creation, over all time and space history. When we talk about the universal kingdom, we're talking about God's sovereignty, God's transcendence, that God is intimately working through every detail of his creation. There are no rogue atoms. Satan is on a leash. Even sin was ordained by God. God rules over everything. This is what we mean by the universal kingdom of God. And often when people think of God as king, that's what they think of. There's another aspect to God's reign and rule, and it's what we might call the mediatorial reign of God. In other words, that God reigns through a mediator, that God reigns through a human instrument who represents him in a certain realm that he has ordained. And this is exactly what we find in the Bible from the earliest moments when God created Adam and Eve, he was enacting his mediatorial kingdom on earth. His vice regent, this king and queen, this human king and queen, who was given dominion over this planet to rule over it, to cultivate the garden, to be fruitful and multiply. God had created these little mediatorial kings and queens through the human uh, race. And of course, Adam utterly failed in his role as God's mediator on earth. Adam abdicated that role. He doubted God's word. He followed the serpent and he failed utterly. And so God began a program to continue to rule the earth through human beings. So we moved from Adam and Eve to Noah, who would be the next mediatorial ruler of God. And then we would move to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and eventually the, the Davidic line of David and Solomon and their offspring. 
But as we go through this history of this mediator, failure after failure after failure, right? Until we come to the ultimate mediator of the of King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second and final Adam, the one who would not fail in God's prescribed role for him. And so it is this mediatorial kingdom that we have to have in mind as we read the Gospels. The king has come. And in those days, he was offering this mediatorial kingdom. Not that you don't offer the universal kingdom. It just is. You don't vote it in. You don't accept it. You don't bow to it. It just is. It rules. But this mediatorial kingdom, Jesus comes offering to the nation of Israel. And in time, they reject him and his offer. And so he withdraws the offer for a future generation. There are three, then, most common views of the mediatorial kingdom. I kind of got ahead of myself there for a moment. Let me give you the three. There, there's more than three. There's seven or eight views, but there are three that are most commonly held among evangelical Christians. And let me give them to you real in, in snapshot, okay? This is going to be real abbreviated form. The first view is uh, the view that would say the mediatorial kingdom arrived with Jesus. It arrived with Jesus in the incarnation and especially his public ministry. This view would say that this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. In this view, Satan has been bound and we are in it right now. We are in it right now. It arrived with Jesus. He, he, he bound Satan at the cross. It's a spiritual kingdom and we're experiencing it now. And this view is called amillennialism. Ah, meaning no millennial, no literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth. This view goes back primarily to Augustine or Augustine of the third century of a church father. And the reformers followed Augustine. Luther, Calvin followed him in this. Many of the Puritans followed him in this, uh, even up to Charles Spurgeon. And many, many today hold this view of all millennialism, a spiritual kingdom. Satan is bound. We're in it now. Okay. In this view, primarily uh, by most that would hold it, that are consistent, Israel was replaced by the church. The church has replaced Israel as uh, as God's chosen people. God is done with Israel. God's divorced Israel. They blew their chance. They have been set aside forever. And so what they have to do under this view is take the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament. In the Abrahamic Davidic covenants, they take those promises and they have to spiritualize them. They spiritualize them and, and say their promises for us in the in the church age. In this view, amillennialism, you've got a lot of stuff that's going to happen at one time. Now, they do believe in a literal, physical return of Jesus Christ. And we're in, we're in lockstep with every Christian on that. Jesus is going to return. But a lot of things happen at one time in amillennialism. And here, here's the list. The rapture, the second coming, the great white throne judgment, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem all happen about the same time. So we're just now, we're just waiting for all of that to happen. And then we're into the eternal state. The parables then of Matthew 13, in this view, describe this spiritual kingdom. All right. The second view, the second most commonly held view is a view that is often described this way. The kingdom of God is inaugurated, but it's not consummated. Now, just... 
from a language standpoint, I can't even get my brain around that. I don't even know what those words mean. You know, if you came up and said to me, this is inaugurated but not consummated, I would say, I don't even know what you're saying right now. Another popular catchphrase for this view of the kingdom is the kingdom of God is already but not yet. It is it, 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 uh, this is very popular language. It actually goes back to George Ladd, who was a professor. I believe he was out in California. Um, and the seminary name just escapes me. But George Ladd popularized this view. He may have come up with it. Were, I think he coined the phrase already, not yet. And he did this in the 1950s. In this view, it's a mediating position between the first view that I gave you and what will be the third view. This is a mediating position by design. It's like trying to take the best of both views. It's trying to say, well, yes, there's a spiritual kingdom that's already, but there's a physical kingdom that's not yet. And it's this this kind of of middle-of-the-road type uh, position. The third view of the kingdom of God is this, that we're talking about a literal, earthly millennial messianic kingdom that will take place on this earth and is yet future. It's all future. It's all not yet in this view. This view could also be described as futuristic pre-millennialism. Futuristic pre-millennialism that Jesus Christ will return to earth pre or before the millennial kingdom. Where uh, number two went back to George Ladd and number one goes back to Augustine, this view goes back to the Bible. (laughs) This view goes back to the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this view of a literal, earthly, messianic kingdom, those who hold this view, of which I am one, believe that this is necessary for God to keep all of his promises and for God to keep his covenants with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the priestly covenant, and the new covenant. That the only way God can keep all five of those covenants, Abrahamic, Mosaic, priestly, Davidic, and new, is if there is a literal earthly kingdom of Christ on this earth. And we learn from the New Testament, specifically Revelation 20, that this kingdom will have a duration of 1,000 years. In this view of the kingdom, Israel, ethnic Israel, will be saved, both physically and spiritually. They will be at peace and they will be in their land that God promised them. Satan will be in the pit locked up. Satan will be in prison for a thousand years. Jesus Christ in his glorified body will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and reign and rule the entire world. There will be no more elections. There will be no more politicians. There will be no more presidential debates. There will be no more fundraisers for this candidate or that candidate. There will be one king and one Lord, and he will be on this planet that you and I live on right now, across the planet, in a country called Israel, in a city called Jerusalem that exists right now in this moment. And he will sit on that throne as prophet, priest, and king. This kingdom is also known as... The kingdom of heaven, 
the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our father. These are synonymous terms in the New Testament, in the Gospels for this kingdom, this one and only kingdom. Now, if we go back to the Jews of Jesus day, their mindset, their expectation, including the 12 apostles, these men were steeped in a literal understanding of the kingdom passages that are throughout the Old Testament. There are kingdom passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, especially Daniel. These men were students of the Old Testament, their Bible. And they were steeped in a literal understanding. Meaning they could not and they did not conceive of views one or two. They would have thought this is a foreign language if you start to talk to me about a spiritual kingdom only. That would have been nonsensical to the Jews of Jesus' day. I believe as well that if you start talking about an already not yet sort of scenario, they would scratch their heads and look at you puzzled. View number one and view number two are more Greek than they are Hebrew in nature. View number one and view number two are more abstract than they are concrete. They, they, they reflect Greek philosophy and even at some level some Gnosticism that says matter is evil and spirit is good. So the kingdom can only be spiritual in nature. And these views can inch in that direction toward Greek philosophy and Gnosticism versus a concrete view that the Hebrews would have had. As I've been preparing this sermon, I thought back to uh, several years ago in this church. It was 2013 and 2014 that for nine months over in the Fellowship Hall, I taught uh, an in-depth series on the kingdom of God for nine months. And at the end of that nine months, I decided I was so passionate about this subject and feel like there are so many implications of getting this right that I wrote a 16-page letter to all of our missionaries and organizations. And mailed it out to them. And it was basically a summary of those nine months of teaching. We might think of it as my kingdom manifesto. <laughs> and I dug that out and read it last night. Sent it to our pastoral staff because none of them were uh, were here then. And and uh, just, just very, very concerned that people can get into some very deep weeds in many areas if we don't understand what the kingdom of God really is. So I stand before you today telling you that I am 100% convinced that this view number three is correct. 100% convinced. And that there are immense implications. We'll see some of these at the end, but only scratch the surface. The question then comes up, well, is there any sense of truth to the already not yet? Or to ask it another way, is there any overlap at all? If you're saying the kingdom is all future, it's all not yet, is there any overlap at all between the kingdom of Christ, kingdom of God, synonymous, and right now? And the answer would be a cautious yes to this degree. Here's the overlap. The future kingdom is currently being populated as Jews and Gentiles hear the gospel Repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When people come to faith in Christ, 
they become qualified to enter the future kingdom. And in that sense, there is an overlap. Regeneration is the qualification to get in. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, he looked at this moral man, this godly man, outwardly this this upright man, and he basically said to him, you are spiritually dead. Right? John 3. He looks at Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. This is how we qualify. Salvation is how we qualify for a future entrance. We might think of it like our ticket to some grand event that we want to go to in the future. Something we've been longing for and planning for. And we must be qualified with a, with a ticket to get in. And so salvation is that ticket. The other, other overlap would be this. When you become a Christian, Jesus becomes your king. So the overlap would be, you are even now under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. One day that will be manifest physically. One day it will be visible. But now it is invisible and spiritual in nature. The king reigns on the throne of your heart if you're a Christian. And the implications of this for gospel preaching and for evangelism are immense. They're immense. We cannot separate Jesus' uh, lordship from Him being Savior. We cannot decide that He will only be king at some future date. That kingship, that reign, that rule, that ownership begins the moment you give Him your heart. The moment you yield to Him your life. That's why I use language like this all the time in conversion. of You're waving the white flag. You're surrendering to the king. You're, you're submitting to His rule. And we find His rule in His word. And so those kinds of thoughts have got to be part of our gospel preaching. Now, with all of that in mind, turn to Matthew chapter 13, if you haven't already. And let's be reminded here that this is the third major block of Jesus' teaching in the gospel of Matthew. Three out of, this is number three out of five in total. The literary and historical context of Matthew 13 is crucial. If you're going to interpret parables accurately, you must look at the context, both literary, the chapters before, but also the context historically. And we've seen already that the context of these parables is rejection. In chapter 12, the Pharisees blasphemed the Holy Spirit, said Jesus did a miracle by the power of Satan, and they have formally rejected him. And so that is the context by which these parables then began to come forth. And we've learned that parables are to do two things. Do you remember what they are? Number one, they are to conceal. Parables conceal truth from unbelievers, from those who reject, from those who close their eyes. And and then parables reveal truth to disciples. And that's what Jesus says when he explains to the disciples why he speaks in these parables, these comparisons, these uh, analogies. We want to hone in on chapter 13, verse 10 and 11 for a moment. Because we want to ask the question then, if parables are meant to reveal to disciples, and here we are as disciples, primarily, uh, wanting to see what truth these parables reveal, what is being revealed then in Matthew 13? 
And for our starting point, we go to chapter, uh, we go to verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. And so here Jesus is telling them that sovereign grace has granted to them the ability to know and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And I think this is the only time he'll use this entire phrase. And from here, he'll use shorthand for this phrase. If you go on through the the chapter, verse 19, uh, anyone hears the word of the kingdom? Or just, uh, I just want to show you this real quick. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. I think he's using shorthand there for the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven is being revealed here. Uh, He uses this phrase again in verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like. And on it goes throughout the chapter several more times. And when he says the kingdom of heaven there, again, listen, he means the millennial, earthly, messianic reign of Christ on this earth. Also called the kingdom of God. Also called the kingdom of your father. So... The question becomes, what mysteries are these parables revealing to disciples? Okay, we got to take a step back and define mystery from a biblical standpoint. A biblical mystery is where a truth was hidden in a previous era is now being revealed. It's not like a, a, a novel, not like a murder mystery you're trying to figure it out. It's like something was covered, something was hidden, and now something is completely explained and revealed. And so Jesus says, we're going to look at some mysteries now that in the past, under the old covenant, no one knew, no one understood. It wasn't revealed, but I'm going to reveal them to you now in these parables for disciples. Y'all with me? That's what's going to happen in each one of these parables. Let me give you an example of this from uh, the epistles. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment. So I want you to see an example of a mystery previously hidden that is revealed in the New Covenant or in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made revelation, okay, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And so Paul is just like the disciples. It's been granted to him to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And by revelation, this came and he's spoken of it already. Verse four, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And he's going to give us one of them. He's going to give us a mystery that was covered up in the Old Testament that is revealed now through Paul. It's 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 astounding, which in other generations, verse five, was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Here it is. Verse six, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's not a provincial savior. He's the savior of the world. He's the savior of people beyond Jews and Israel. And we come in with equal footing, joint heirs with Christ, fellow heirs in the body. We're not second class citizens. We're not God's stepchildren. We are his adopted children equally beside of the Jewish convert. 
of which Paul says, I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So that's one of these mysteries then that was covered up in the Old Testament. A lot was revealed in the Old Testament, but at no point did you did you understand that Jew and Gentile would be on equal footing in the gospel. You knew there'd be Gentiles, right? There's all kinds of hints about Gentiles, but you didn't know how that was going to work until the new covenant. That's an example. So that brings us to this question. What is the mystery that is revealed in Matthew 13 that was not revealed to any Old Testament prophet? And the answer to this question will be the common link, the common denominator between all seven parables. And it will guide our interpretation of each one. We've already interpreted one and thankfully correctly. (laughs) All right. So we're going to arrive at the answer to this question via a process of elimination. And this is going to be fun. And this is going to be like walking with Jesus down the road to Emmaus. We're going to arrive at the answer of what mystery is being revealed in Matthew 13 by a process of elimination. So we ask the first question, was it the coming of God with us? The answer, no. That was revealed in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So that's not it. That's already been revealed. All right. Well, then was it the coming of a divine human king as the son of David? Answer. No, that was revealed in Isaiah nine, six and seven. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So the coming of a divine human king called the son of David was also revealed. Okay, well, then was it the unique empowering of this king by God, the Holy Spirit? Answer, no, that was revealed in Isaiah 11 too. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And there is the apostle John's sevenfold spirit of God resting on the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his earthly ministry. So that was revealed to the Old Testament prophets. Was it his final offer of a kingdom to Israel that he would make upon the back of a donkey? Answer, no. That was revealed in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Was it the rejection of the king? No, that was revealed in Psalm 22. 
We read words like this. He would be forsaken. He would be a reproach, despised, poured out his bones out of joint. He would experience dehydration. They would pierce his hands and his feet and they would divide his garments among them. All prophesied in Psalm 22. Or Isaiah 53 that tells us of the suffering servant of Yahweh, this suffering king. Isaiah 53, here are some of the words. He would be despised, forsaken of men. He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would bear our griefs. He would bear our sins. He would bear our sorrows. Isaiah 53 says he would be stricken. He would be smitten. He would be pierced through. That God would crush him, chasten him, scourge him. He would be oppressed and afflicted. He would be like a lamb silent before its shearers. The sacrificial lamb of God revealed in Isaiah 53. Well, then was it the resurrection of the rejected crucified king? No, that too was revealed in the Old Testament. Psalm 16 reveals it. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. There Jesus calls the resurrection the path of life. Path of endless life, path of eternal life. He was raised never to die again, Paul says in Romans 6. He lives forevermore. So the resurrection has already been revealed. I'm going in a chronological order so you can guess what's next. Was it the coming kingdom of peace, prosperity, righteousness, justice? Was it this coming inconceivable kingdom where the curse is lifted from the planet, where the wolf lies down with the lamb, where where a little boy plays with cobras and is no threat to him whatsoever? Would it be a, a place and a time where the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord from sea to shining sea? Is that what was not revealed yet? The answer is no. Isaiah reveals this among many, many other places. In Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, he speaks of a literal wolf lying down with literal lambs. And the whole earth, it says, is full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So what's left? I mean, that's a lot, wasn't it? Aren't you amazed at how much is revealed in the Old Testament? What's left related to the kingdom of heaven? One word answer. Postponement. Postponement. There would be a postponement between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ of this kingdom that was not revealed in the Old Testament. No prophet got any glimpse whatsoever that there would be a delay in the coming of the kingdom. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah. It's just back a few pages from Matthew. And I want to show you this in two places. It's so incredible. Zechariah 9 is where we want to start. And then we'll go look at Isaiah 11. But in Zechariah 9... What's left for Jesus to reveal in these parables is what happens between verse 9, Zechariah 9, 9, which I read a moment ago. It's, 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 it's what happens between verse 9 and verse 10. 
Okay, so look at it. Look at it with me. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, your king's coming, he's on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And we know that that was fulfilled in the triumphal entry, right? We know that that happened at his first coming, right? Look at verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's another word for Israel, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Has that happened? No. No, that has not happened. And we don't have to spiritualize it. We don't have to change Israel into the church and Jerusalem into heavenly Jerusalem. We don't have to spiritualize this. This has not happened. So what these parables are going to reveal is the white space between verse 9 and verse 10. (laughs) What happens between first and second coming? Let me show you another Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And this is so important as you read your Old Testament. It's like a mountain range where you can see this peak and this peak, and they look like they're close together, but there's actually hundreds of miles in between them. Look at Isaiah 11. So I'm not going to take time to read all of this, but Isaiah 11, 1 to 4, the first line of verse 4 was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. You can look at it. It was fulfilled in his first coming. Primarily that the Spirit of God would empower and enable him as the Messiah. In verse 4a, the verse line of verse 4, and with righteousness he will judge the poor. And he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. But look at the next line. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now did Jesus do any of that at his first coming? No. He came humbly. He came as a lamb of God. The wicked slayed him. He didn't slay the wicked. That's second coming. What Matthew 13 parables described for us is what happens between Isaiah 11, 1 to 4a and 4b and following. (laughs) Because what follows is the second coming and the millennial kingdom. Where the wolf dwells with the lamb, verse 6, and the leopard lies down with a goat and a calf and a young lion lie down together. In other words, the warfare that we see right now among animals in a fallen world under the curse, that goes away. And all animals become vegetarians in the millennial kingdom. They don't kill each other anymore. There's nothing but peace and harmony and prosperity all over the globe. And we still wait for that. So in a nutshell, the parables of Matthew 13 describe for us what happens between the first and second coming of Jesus. This postponement then was not disclosed to Old Testament prophets as to either its long duration, it's been 2,000 years, or its description. And just like Ephesians 3, the parables of Matthew 13 then describe in some way something of this postponement period. They describe the gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. They describe the gap between Messiah being cut off and his return. Simply put, the parables of Matthew 13 primarily describe the church age. Now, they're going to go all the way to the second coming, so it includes the tribulation, but that's only seven years. 
And we're 2,000 years into the church age, so it's primarily for the church. Matthew then wants us to know what to expect while we fulfill the Great Commission and as we wait for Jesus to return, not what to expect after Jesus returns. The Old Testament prophets covered in great detail what would happen after he returns. There's no need to repeat all of that. We need to know what to expect during the Great Commission age, during the church age, as we eagerly wait for the rapture of the church. So to sum up then, the Messianic kingdom is all not yet. It's all cross before it is crown. It is all sowing the seed in weakness, in brokenness, and in gentleness. We sow the seed of the gospel in the first coming demeanor of Christ. We sow the seed of the gospel in the demeanor of the one who said, I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We sow the seed in that demeanor. We're not demanding. We don't lift up our voice and scream at people. We don't browbeat people. We're calm. We're confident. We're collected. We, we, we're urgent, but we share in the first coming demeanor of Jesus. Now, it's often been taught and often said, and I believe incorrectly, and I just want to, boy, I just want to get you to remember this because it's repeated so often we've taken it as true. You hear this over and over again. The Jews were wrong to expect an earthly kingdom. No, they weren't. The Jews had read their Bible. (laughs) We're told that the Jews were wrong to expect an earthly kingdom through a conquering king. Now, what they missed was how his death fit into God's plan. The death was revealed. They didn't understand how it fit, right? What they missed was how God's, how the postponement of the kingdom fit into the plan. The apostles were 100% right to expect a Messiah who would rule the world from the throne of David in Jerusalem. 100% right. They just didn't have the details and the timing right. The proof of this is a very important and overlooked verse in Acts. Go look at Acts 1-6. I've got it in my notes, so I won't need to turn there, but you can look at it. Acts 1-6. This is one of the most important verses in the entire New Testament. Here's the proof that the Jews had the right expectations ultimately. After the resurrection of Jesus and before His ascension... The apostles ask him, okay, do you get the timing? He's already been crucified and he's already been raised, but he hasn't ascended back to heaven. And the apostles ask him this question in Acts 1-6. One of the most important verses in the New Testament. Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, right now, Jesus has the opportunity to correct an inerrant view of the kingdom. He could correct that, oh, you're looking for the wrong thing. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's already here. He could set them straight right here. They're asking, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Israel means Israel. And Jesus does not say you're wrong for asking the question. He does not say that you have the wrong expectation. His answer tells us volumes. It is not for you to know times or epics. It is not for you to know when the Father has fixed this by His own authority. Implication, it's going to happen. It's not for you to know when. 
It's not just a spiritual kingdom. It's an earthly, physical kingdom with spiritual elements. Now, with all of this on your mind and in your brain, let's look at, uh, at these parables real quick, uh, just for the sake of reading them. I want to start, we've covered the, the first one, so let's start uh, jumping down to verse, uh, let's start at verse 24. We've already covered the parable of the sower and the seed. Let's just uh, read these parables that make up the rest of this chapter with all of this on our minds, fresh on our minds. And, and I've got to ask you to keep it on your minds for the next two or three weeks, okay? <laughs> Hope you can do that. All right, so verse 24 is where we'll start. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares become evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three packs of flour until it was all leavened. Drop down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and they will take out of the wicked... They will take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus says to the disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. I want to give you a few closing applications, implications of what we talked about this morning. And I, and I do thank you for your patience. Number one, we need to focus on the church, not the kingdom. If the kingdom is not yet, if the kingdom is future, if the kingdom will take care of itself when the king comes, we need to focus on the church. Jesus promises in the Gospel of Matthew, I will build my church. 
In other words, let's live in the moment. Live in the moment. The past is the past. It cannot be changed. It's gone forever. It's gone forever. You can do nothing about the past. Don't go back there. Don't live there. Don't drag it through your life. It's gone. It's over. And you can't grasp the future. It's always out of reach. It's just out of reach. Live in the present. Live in the moment. And in the moment, in God's economy, is the church. The bride of Christ. The body of Jew and Gentile in one body brought together under the blood of Jesus. You know, to live focused on the kingdom would be like an NFL football player starting to talk about the Super Bowl in week one. Hey, what do you think about the game today? Oh, I don't know. No, no. Let's talk about the Super Bowl. Super Bowl. You know, let's talk about it in February. You know, just having this distraction out of something that's so far future. Instead of focusing on the process on today. Right? Let's not focus on the Super Bowl. Let's focus on week one. Let's focus on today's practice. Let's focus on this play. Let's focus on this moment. Not the scoreboard. Not eternity for the sake of just cannot escape to eternity. We need to focus now and focus on the church. Now let me give you some stats to help you do this. <laughs> the word kingdom is used 160 times in the New Testament. 134 of those times is in the Gospels or Revelation after the church is gone. Only 26 times is the word kingdom used from the book of Acts to the book of Jude. 26 out of 160. And even then, most of those describe it as something that we will inherit, something that we will enter, something that is yet future. And then you compare that to the word church. The word church is used 77 times in the New Testament. 77 times. It's only three times in the Gospels. All of them in Matthew. 74 times the word church is used from Acts to Revelation until the church disappears in the rapture. Let us focus then on the church, not the kingdom. Number two, we must keep a clear distinction between the church and Israel. God does and God's word does. In the Bible, Israel is always Israel. Old Testament, New Testament. It's always ethnic Israel, God's chosen people. Let us keep a clear distinction between the two. Number three, you need to learn where your favorite preachers and authors stand on this critical issue. There is a long list of very well-known people who are right on many, many things, but I believe are wrong on the kingdom. They're either wrong on it or they totally ignore it. And this has a huge impact on how they handle the Bible. It has a huge impact on their view of ministry, on their philosophy of ministry, on their, on their philosophy of gospel preaching and making disciples. Huge impact. It is this right here that if you get this wrong, you eventually end up in social gospel, social justice causes, and you leave evangelism and discipleship far, far behind. And there is ample church evidence to prove that. It started in our country in the late 1800s. It's exactly what's going to happen eventually if you lose sight of the future kingdom and the church is where it's at. The church is where it's at. Again, tons of implications we don't have time for. Number four, we need to, as evangelical Christians, we need to honor Israel. We need to pray for Israel. We need to stand up for Israel. And the way we can do that right now in this season of life is we need to honor Israel by voting for candidates that honor Israel. We need to vote for candidates who stand with God's chosen people. Listen, that is not just another piece of real estate. And this is not just another people group. This people group is a miracle of God. This people group should not exist, humanly speaking. 
You are not going to find the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, but you will find the Israelites in their land. Since 1948, in the modern state of Israel, praise God, we need to vote for candidates who support Israel. Many of you already know this, but there is a great, great divide between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party on this front. In fact, you might could argue that this divide and this difference is probably as great as any other difference among these two parties. This is a huge, huge issue. Learn where your candidates stand, whether they are congressmen, senators, or presidential candidates on Israel. And then finally, number five, we need to be a smiling pre-millennialist, not a Pollyanna optimist, or a sky-is-falling pessimist. Be a smiling pre-millennialist. What do I mean? Well, harvest results will vary, and three out of four will not bear fruit, but some will receive, and some will hear and bear massive amounts of fruit. Or, to say it another way, weeds will intermingle. But the wheat is going to grow as well. I'm a smiling premillennial realist. The leaven and the mustard seed start small and imperceptible, but they can grow to great impact and influence while the minority of the world loves Jesus and the majority hate Jesus. I'm a premillennial realist. Our hope isn't a golden age where the church becomes so dominant around the world that we bring in the kingdom. That's post-millennialism. <laughs> or that we're in it right now. Whoa, if we're in it right now, I am seriously disappointed. All right? <laughs> no, our hope is that God will fulfill His covenant with Abraham <laughs> through Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Our hope is that the Deliverer will come from Zion and He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Our hope is the salvation of ethnic Israel. Because when they're saved, the blessings for the world become astronomical and unimaginable. Stand with me as we close our service in prayer. Our God of heaven and earth, our sovereign universal king, we thank you for the mediatorial king. And we thank you that according to your perfect plan, he will return. He will lay claim to planet earth. He will take up what is rightfully his. He will save his people, the Israelites, who are uh, will be on the brink of extinction. He will rescue that remnant. He will set up his kingdom. Satan will be bound and the world will be a, a place of peace and prosperity, joy, blessing. We long for that millennial kingdom. And Lord, even before that, we, the church, long for the rapture. And we pray today, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come today, Lord Jesus. We would just as soon bypass Tuesday and just be with you now. We pray, Lord, that... Uh, you would keep our hope fixed, fixed on you. Lord, we do uh, all together now pray for thy will to be done, for your people to vote, 
for your people to vote their conscience and to vote biblical convictions and to not set this out. It is far too important to let other people decide for our country. So, Lord, may all of your people in every state in this country, if they haven't already, get to the polls on Tuesday. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You're dismissed.